This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Christy Shriver. We're here to read books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Let me remind you one more time to please give us a five-star rating and a review. It's how we can be a part of the podcast game. And if you're listening to us in real time, happy Halloween from the good old U.S. of A. and the great state of Tennessee. Uh, that's right. Uh, uh, of course, lots of us uh, live all over the world, and we're so grateful for those of you who tune in from places as far away as Riyadh and Pakistan and Sydney in New South Wales. Uh, and if you think about it and have time to check in with us, drop us a line about different days that we can shout out and different traditions from all over the world that we can recognize. And uh, We all share this great place called Planet Earth, and it's fun to compare traditions. And as far as the U.S. goes, Halloween is one of our stranger holidays. Yes, it really is. Everyone dresses up in costumes, some funny, some scary, some made from scratch, some very expensive. I remember one year, my daughter Anna made a costume out of a trash can. She went as Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz in the fifth grade. And then the (laughs) next year, she came back with Pippi Longstocking to her first Halloween dance. (laughs) Oh, well, both your girls are known for their crazy costumes. I mean, didn't Lizzie dress up one year as the old man from the movie Up? Yes, and last year, Anna went to a party dressed as salt, as in the condiment. But we're not rich people, so we always have to get creative with whatever leftover clothes are in the backs of closets or neighbors' closets. And, you know, it's fun to be funny. Lizzie and her roommate last year went as Shark Boy and Lava Girl. So, you know, things like that. Well, we probably shouldn't go into the details of uh, our last year's fiasco as you and I went as Fred and Wilma (laughs) Flintstone. But I think people get the idea that Halloween, uh, for all the spooky movies and everything, is supposed to be a time of having fun and playing around and 
giving candy to children and making connections with neighbors and people you live around, but you might not socialize with much. Well, that's true. Growing up in Brazil, of course, we didn't have Halloween. We did have something called Festa Junina, which was a, a festival where we dressed up and got in costumes and ate fun food and had community. So, you know, those traditions are everywhere, just maybe not Halloween style. I don't really know how Halloween decided it should be scary. You know, I have feelings against that. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Well, uh, you know, it, it, there's a long, long history dating back to the Celts and the Druids uh, originally, but it has definitely evolved a lot today. And almost a, almost a quarter of all the candy sold in the United States is sold around this holiday. Oh, dear. So as you can see, the emphasis has definitely changed from semi-serious to a dentist dream holiday <laughs> true well we're definitely per- participants we have door decorations and candy and today we're going to celebrate by giving a nod to one of america's scariest writers edgar Allan poe mm. uh, yes and last week we discussed his very difficult early days uh, we began with the death of his mother and then living with an adopted family named the Allens, and where the mother of that family died and uh, his extremely antagonistic relationship with his adopted father. And we also discussed his very tumultuous professional career, getting kicked out of school, being discharged from the military and getting hired and fired up and down the East Coast multiple times. Well, his life was definitely not easy. There's no doubt about that. And amid all of this self-destructive struggle, he did produce some very remarkable and iconic art. You know, Poe's career lasted really over 20 years, if you think that it started from when he first published a book of poetry at the age of 18. And, of course, he died 22 years later. His greatest success really came in 1845. That's only going to be four years before he dies with the publication of his most famous poem, The Raven. It came out in a New York Evening Mirror, which is a magazine, on January 29, 1845, and it went viral immediately. I'm really not sure he made 10 bucks for publishing the original poem, but it's republished, and it was republished all over the world, and it did lead to him being able to publish a book called The Raven and Other Poems. And that sold well and kind of helped him stabilize his finances for the first time in his entire life. To me, this poem reminds me of those iconic pieces of art that make people famous, like Put a Ring on It by Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe I've got Friends in Low Places by Garth Brooks. And, of course... Dancing Queen by ABBA. (laughs) All roads seem to lead to Mamma Mia for you. Well, if I'm drawing the map, then go where I want. But yes. (laughs) Well, I guess the idea uh, being there is uh, a breakout hit that makes someone's otherwise unnoticed work become extremely visible. Well, exactly. And although, you know, in our minds, it's really difficult to see a poem elevating you to that level of fame today because we don't rave over poetry like that now. But... If you've ever seen Anne of Green Gables, which is a great movie and a fantastic book, but if you've seen it, you'd know what I'm talking about because in that book, you they did this. They would perform poems for friends and neighbors and at parties and some things like that. And it was a popular thing to do. And this poem was great for that because it has this incredibly fun refrain. It's full of rhyme. It's got alliteration. 
there's a story. It can be emotional when you recite it out loud. So, you know, there's a lot to work with, and it's just a lot of fun. Sadly, this celebrated fortune of his was pretty short-lived. One of the dreams of Poe's life was to own his own magazine, which he was able to do after this uh, glory moment with the Raven. But financial ruin was never far away from Poe. And even after he wrote the blockbuster Cask of Amontillado that next year, and then his very famous essay called The Philosophy of Composition that you're going to talk about here in a minute, he couldn't make the money work. Uh, This very uh, directly, truly brought to fruition the worst tragedy of his life yet. You know, as we talked about last week, he was living with his wife, the child bride named Virginia. (laughs) Oh, yes. And his aunt slash mother-in-law, Mrs. Clem. But because they were so poor, they were all living in this uh, not very nice unheated room in New York if you can imagine. And Virginia had been sick with tuberculosis for the last four years, but these conditions were too much for her sickly body, and she didn't make it, and nobody's surprised. No, and it's generally agreed that this death really wiped him out. I mean, he became in some sense a lot more like the characters he'd been describing in in all these stories. He'd so vividly expressed irrational or sometimes rational fear driving his protagonist's to craziness and he so well described how it feels to feel crazy to lose your sense of reality to feel terror to feel like your life is haunted and it's interesting to note that all of his stories are in the first person although you know he's not talking about himself they're not biographical but his narrative techniques really are one of the things that make him stand out and when he's writing out of himself he makes us feel these experiences. We're the Poe in these writings, too. Poe's last major writing actually is not a story and it's not a poem. It's this work called Eureka. It's 40,000 words of nonfiction, philosophical, metaphysical, spiritual, essay-type thinking. And he wrote it, finished it, and then he wrote to Mrs. Clem, that he, and he said that he craved for death. Here's the quote. I must die. I have no desire to live since I've done Eureka. That's sad. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, but on the other hand, the sadness that didn't keep him from trying to find another wife, which he actually <laughs> did do, and the person of Mrs. Sarah Elmira Royster Shelton, uh, a wealthy widow who he had a crush on as a teenager. And it seems he even convinced her to marry him in spite of quite a bit of opposition. She had inherited over $100,000 from her husband uh, on the condition that she did not marry. Plus, her children did not approve of their mother's relationship with Poe. And uh, although she had agreed that they had a little bit of an uphill battle to make it happy. Well, it was not to be fated, by the way. It's rumored that Sarah, not Virginia, is the muse of both the girl in The Raven as well as the girl in Annabelle Lee, but I don't really know if that's something anybody could ever know for sure. If you look up her picture on Wikipedia, though, I think she's really, really pretty. (laughs) Well, here's the mysterious end of the story. Poe left Richmond, Virginia, where Sarah lived in July after agreeing to marry him. He was on his way back to Philadelphia, where he was supposed to edit a volume of poetry when whatever happened to him happened. This is what we know. 
so far uh, in a letter written to Dr. Joseph Snodgrass in Baltimore. Uh, It was received on October 3rd, 1849, and it read, Dear Sir, there's a gentleman, rather the worse for wear, at Ryan's Fourth Ward Poles, who goes under the cognomen of Edgar A. Poe, and he appears in great distress, and he says he is acquainted with you. He is in need of immediate assistance. Yours in haste, Joseph W. Walker, to Dr. J.E. Snodgrass. So uh, no one had seen him since the morning of September 27th, and Dr. Snodgrass found Poe semi-conscious and dressed in clothes that people said weren't his own. <laughs> oh, dear. He was taken to the hospital, and the next day he regained consciousness, but never enough to tell anybody what had happened to him. And after four days of this um, in-and-out state, he started calling out the name Reynolds, Reynolds. But that didn't make much sense either. And on the morning of October 7th, Poe breathed a prayer, and he said, Lord, help my poor soul. And that, and that was it. Uh, there have been 150 years of theories as to what happened to him, ranging from him being mugged uh, to something to do with his poor relationship with alcohol to getting rabies uh, or even being murdered. But honestly, we'll never know. Well, it seems appropriate that Poe leaves this world in a cloud of mystery. I mean, he is credited, after all, with being one of the original creators of the detective story. In fact, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle once said that Poe's stories were a model for all time and contributed significantly to the creation of Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes. Poe's own death is literally an unsolved mystery, and he was originally buried in an unmarked grave. Of course, that's not inappropriate for a man who struggled so much with money from the day he was born. And, ironically, his fame and fortune would finally change after his death. Because <laughs> bad timing. I know, it is bad timing. By 1875, they'd raised money to erect a monument to his honor, and Virginia's remains were brought down from New York, and eventually he was buried with Virginia and Mrs. Clem, all together in a nice, peaceful, and celebrated fashion. And it's just ironic that everything he wanted in life... To be with the women he loved, to be rich, to be famous, he got it all. Just not quite in the proper timing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he should have reversed the order. I know. Um, and you would think that the Poe mystery would end there, but that would be too basic for someone as unusual as Poe. And before we leave the life and times of Poe and get serious about reading the Raven, uh, I can't let you move on without mentioning the Poe Toaster. Oh, yes, the Poe Toaster. Tell us that story, Gary. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, well, it seems uh, that there was a man who sometime during the late 1930s or 40s um, started this personal tradition of going to Poe's original grave every January 19th. And it wasn't a publicity stunt. Uh, He would go by himself and dressed in black and wearing a wide-brimmed hat and a white scarf, and he would pour himself a glass of cognac and raise a toast to Poe's memory and leave three roses, presumably uh, one for Poe and one for Virginia and one for Maria Clem. And apparently this went on for years until uh, someone in the press found out about it and wrote about it in a newspaper in 1950. And it got tons of visibility uh, as a strange phenomenon. And 
people began wondering who this guy was and what was the point, as you would expect. And he never came out with a reason. And he wasn't uh, cashing in on any fame or glory of Poe. It was just a really a private and personal tradition. And over the years, several people tried to identify him by tracing clues from the bottles and talking to people at the Poe Museum. But uh, interestingly enough, and apparently out of respect for this tradition, uh, no one stopped him mid-tradition to uh, uncover the mystery. And it is a mystery. And this went on for years until uh, in 1993, a note was left for Jeff Jerome, who curates the uh, the Poe Museum. And, and the note said only that the torch will be passed. Then another note was left in 1999 saying that the original toaster had died within months before the annual event. The toasting continued, maybe by a relative or a close friend, uh, through 2009 and the bicentennial of Poe's birth, but then it suddenly stopped. Now, there have been several poser toasters since then. Poser toasters? (laughs) Faux toasters? Faux Poe? Faux Poe toasters. Mm -hmm. Uh, it seems that after 80 years, the Poe toaster tradition has finally stopped. And another mystery and a long legacy of a mysterious man. Well, and it's funny that people respected it enough not to push. You know, you probably could have figured it out. But, well, on that note, I say it's time to read his most famous piece, The Raven. And as I am prone to do, I do want to explain it before we read it. I would say read it straight through after that, and although I know that's how Poe would want it read, it's been my experience that most of us need explained a little bit anyway to make sense of it. There's lots of big words, long cumulative sentences, and as Poe clearly tells us in his philosophy of composition, it is a whole 108 lines long. Hmm. Uh, so what is this philosophy of composition? I mean, you've referenced it before, but you didn't explain what it was. Sure. Well, like I said before, Poe really made his money as a literary critic. In fact, lots of people over the years, especially the French critics who've studied Poe maybe more than anyone, really think that he was the first American literary critic of any merit. But uh, like I did mention last week, what he said about other writers, although true, was often mean-spirited and people hated him for it. So it makes sense that when his own blockbuster poem came out and he needed to monetize it, he reviewed it just like he would have reviewed anybody (laughs) else. I'm sure he was impartial. Well, you know, (laughs) instead of lambasting it, he explains in his philosophy of composition why it's so awesome. (laughs) Work of genius. (laughs) Yes. And although it's clearly a media gimmick instead of a real analytic paper. It's interesting. And in a sense, it's a, well, it's literally a direct discussion of the Raven, which makes it kind of worth reading. So uh, what does it say? Well, it says some of the stuff that I brought up last week. He thinks a, a poem should not be longer than anyone can read in one sitting. And if it is a long poem, say like in Paradise Lost, which he mentions, that's really not one poem. It's a collection of little, little poems. And he says that the reason that's true is because a poem can really only pull off successfully one single effect. And that's the point of it. That's the big idea that he really puts out there in his essay. And he thinks that this effect in a poem should be something he calls beautiful. So that's what he thinks the raven is. He's describing something beautiful. I mean, some of us think it's creepy and scary. Well... 
that all comes down to your definition of what it means to be beautiful. Mm. And for him, beauty isn't the same thing as being pretty. For Poe, something is beautiful if it moves you emotionally. He uses this expression, excites the sensitive soul to tears. So if you look at it his way, which you may or might, may not want to do, but if you track with him, you can get to this conclusion that this feeling of melancholy, as he calls it, you might call it sadness or you know, I don't know, horror or something like that. But he thinks melancholy, and I will use his words, is the most legitimate of all the poetical tones. <laughs> so in this sense, maybe he enjoys feeling sad or he thinks it's beautiful to feel sad. That's kind of the idea. Well, I don't know if I want to go around feeling sad all the time, uh, but if we relate it to music, I think there's this idea that when we hear something that reflects how we feel inside, it helps us channel those emotions. And in that sense, maybe there's something beneficial in doing that. Um, something beautiful, if you want to call it that, but sadness for sadness sake, I don't know if I'm interested in that. Well, moving on. Another thing that Poe wants us to be sure to notice when we read his poem is the refrain. And of course, you can't miss the refrain. A refrain is something that's repeated over and over again. And in his essay, he, he makes it sound so scientific. He talks about how he spent all this time thinking about which letters or sounds were the most pleasurable and what would be the perfect word to be repeated in highlighting these most perfect sounds. And after deep pondering, he concludes that the O sound and the R sound are, of course, the perfect sound, which leads him to the conclusion that the word nevermore is the perfect word. <laughs> Is that really how he describes yes. his process? I, mean, I, I can see why people think it's contrived. I know. It's kind of cheesy when you say it, and, it, and maybe it is. It's, uh, it's also cheesy how he talks about how he picked the raven and how the word uh, has to be repeated by the bird. And, uh, and he gets to this crazy conclusion, and I'm going to quote him directly. He says, When it most closely allies itself to beauty... The death, then, of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world, and equal is it beyond doubt that the lips best suited for such topic are those of a bereaved lover. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not a woman, obviously, but uh, to a modern ear, that sounds a little like um, objectifying or at least condescending to women. Am I off? Well, I will refrain from getting into that discussion because we do need to move on to some other things. But Poe says that every poem, and really he does this with his stories too, but he says that every poem should only have one locale or one location and that this location should be very insulated. In other words, he's very deliberate about wanting to box you in and confine you to his world. And if you think about it, you see this really clearly in the cask of Amontillago and there's genius in that effect. In this poem too, what you see is this location that narrows in. And of course this poem is a narrative poem, which means it's also a story. The lover is in a chamber or in a bedroom. If you want to see it that way, it's this closed space and it's, this closeness that kind of contributes to the spooky effect you're not getting out of there. 
the last thing he claims in this essay uh, on how he wrote The Raven, I find hard to believe, but, you know, who am I to argue with one of America's greatest writers? But he claims he wrote the climax of the poem first and worked his way around it. And I don't know how true that could possibly be, but it does make him sound like um, a genius and someone who didn't just write this poem, but calculated it word for word and image by image and sound by sound. It's clear he did do a lot of that. Yes, I think it is kind of really calculated. And really good poetry always is. You don't just sit down and, you know, vomit up a bunch of art. That doesn't happen. It's very well structured. And in this poem specifically, there are 18 stanzas, and they're all six lines long. And the last line of each stanza is that refrain that gives us this feeling of being haunted. And one of the great debates that people have, and it's something to think about as we read the poem, is... Do you think this narrator is crazy? Is he always crazy? Does he lose his mind? Is he asleep? And this is just something that he's dreaming that's happening. You know, people don't agree. It's something to to consider and think about as we read it together and experience the gothic madness that has so terrified audiences for the last 200 years. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. "'Only this, and nothing more.'" Ah, distinctly, I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow, from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. All right, so what do we see? We see the setting. It's December. It's midnight. He's in this room and the lights. There's the fire and the the shadows are all over the place. And he's reading these books, trying to forget about the sorrow for the lost Lenore. She's nameless here forevermore because she's dead. And she's with, as he says, with the angels. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This is it, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' said I, "'or madam,' Truly, your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. So he hears this noise, this uncertain rustling of the curtain, and he thinks there's somebody at the door. So he talks to the door. He opens the door. Nobody's there. (laughs) (laughs) Some creaking sound effects. (laughs) Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token. 
And the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. So, of course, if it's not the door, it has to be the window. So he thinks, must be the wind. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with the mane of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and set, and nothing more. And I do want to point out that the bird comes in and lands, he has a bust of Pallas. So he had like the head of Athena, the great goddess, as a little bitty statuette, which would be in in his room, and the bird sits on it. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling. By the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, though my crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven. Ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore, Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Well, and of course we want to talk about what Plutonian is. Pluto is the god of the underworld. So we're referencing maybe he thinks this raven is a messenger from the afterlife. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly. Though its answer a little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door. Bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such a name as Nevermore. And so we need to notice that it's the bird talking. The bird says, Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only. That one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply, so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store. Caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. And of course, the narrator begins to think, well, maybe his previous owner taught him this one word and... That's why he keeps saying it over and over again. So we have a lucid moment of some logical reason. Except that ravens aren't parrots. (laughs) (laughs) There is that. (laughs) But the raven still beguiling all my fancy into smiling. Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, 
I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, with this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore, meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing. To the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core, this and more I sat divining, with my head at ease, reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with a lamplight gloating o'er shall she press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, Swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee by these angels he hath sent thee. Respite, respite, and nepenthe from my memories of Lenore. Quaff, O quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Okay, and now we get to see some of this spiritual illusions. And of course seraphims or angels and he talks about that wretch thy god hath lent me and of course nepenthe is a drug that's that's a greek illusion but it's a drug that makes you forget things so he's praying help me forget lenore prophet said i think of evil prophet still if bird or devil Whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Well, now we have another biblical allusion because a balm in Gilead is from the Bible and it's a soothing ointment that kind of cures you. So he's saying, prophet, I don't really care if you're from the tempter. That means the devil. If you're from the devil, if you're from heaven, can you give me something, some drug, some balm, anything to help me forget about my pain of losing Lenore? Prophet said I thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell the soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lamore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word, our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave thou my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy break from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door, and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. And of course, here we see him get really mad because he asks if Lenore is in heaven and the raven's going to say, nevermore. Then he yells at the bird, tries to get him to leave, almost go back to hell. And the raven says, 
Never more. <laughs> the raven never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting. His eyes seeming of a devil's that is dreaming. And then we have to wonder, is he crazy? Is he mad? Is there really a raven? Is he from the devil? We don't know. <laughs> I guess that's why people loved it. That's why it was such a hit. All right, well... Happy Halloween to everybody out there. Hope you've enjoyed some family, uh, some friends, no matter where you are in the world. Catch us on Facebook, Instagram. Tell us about your holiday traditions. Peace out. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com